4: sending sophie today's Ba-da! script nobody is recording because the episode yet. it started sophie the nobody episode is, re- is started we can't stop it now it's all i we're going we're we're this is all in the episode hell yeah i'm hitting record right I'm now. Recording
1: now i hit record but maybe, 28 like, seconds ago like, you are the worst you are the worst
4: chris can figure it out man this is how it's going chris, we're doing I'm we're so we're sorry. we're 36 thing, seconds into it by my count you gotta catch the magic by my count can't got to catch yeah, the well, magic. You got to catch it. Discrepancies happen. Thank you, everybody. Um, this is Behind the Bastards, the podcast that is introduced like a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm Robert your producer, Evans.
5: motherfucker. Don't fucking say that. Hey,
4: some, w- some well, could I'm say that. I'm the one introducing
6: it. Yeah. I'm, Listen. Yeah,
5: so the host is could hat, say that a- the producer. Don't come for my name. Listen,
6: <laughs> but pieces of shit are produced effortlessly.
4: I and it's actually quite magic. Produced.
5: Oh, go ahead. They, they
4: are, oh, you said that, introduced. That is true, though. That is yeah. true. Though. Your Everybody's body is magical. I
5: would like a compliment. Yeah, no,
4: I wasn't calling you a piece of shit, Sophie. I was saying my introduction was done I would like, like a, a piece of shit. But <laughs>
5: That's all
4: I yeah. was saying. Well, Do you're, 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 you're your competence producer. is at war with my incompetence and generally edges it out by a slight margin. But not today. <laughs> today, incompetence wins, which is... Ties in to the theme of the episode. This is Behind the Bastards, a show about bad people, the worst ones oh, in all of history. You. Um, And some other stuff, too, sometimes. Like, today, we're not talking... Well, we are talking about some bad people, but we're also talking about a bad thing that happened with our guest, Jason Petty, a.k.a. P-R-O-P. What's Jason the word, y'all? We network buddies. You now, Jason, we are network buddies. Uh, you yes. and I are now, are now co-workers, yeah. colleagues... Um, which I think means if I understand corporate law, we can't be called upon to testify against one another.
6: I wouldn't testify on you anyway, but now I'm glad that it's in, I'm glad that it's in, it's in writing now.
4: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a bond that cannot be broken. Yeah. Being on the same podcast network. You want to talk about, um, well, it's not your new show. It's your old show, but, but now it's on our network. Yeah. It's got a, got a jetpack in it hood politics with prop Mm -hmm. man
6: like yes i'm so excited to bring this to the team and and have y'all's like input into like how to make it as 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 dope as possible yeah it's politics is gangbanging in nice suits i think so many times Mm -hmm. in the same way that like what this pod does which is like brings everybody to the table so that now we all have shared information agreed upon about you know, what's happening in the world and how we got there. I think it's the same with, with, with politics, man. I'm just, look, they just speak a different language. They're not smarter than you. So I'm just here to not give commentary, but analysis so that you know what you're looking at and that can't nobody trick you into thinking that this isn't something you don't already know and understand. So that's a politics. And I'm really looking forward to
5: the uh, Joe Biden's from Long Beach episode.
4: Oh yes. The Joe Biden's <laughs> from Long Beach episode. Uh, uh, uh. see what i Can, really should... have enjoyed in your show is how you explain mitch mcconnell because uh, <laughs> oh, yes. he, he he really has to be explained in like gang yes. terms to really get how mcconnell goes like it what didn't make sense
6: mm-hmm. it took me so long to put a finger on it then i was
4: like oh you're just yeah. a hustler it all made sense mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well we're talking about. We're actually going to talk about some gang shit today. We're going to talk Let's about go. some um, some horrible shit. We're going to talk about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. You ever heard of this prop? Nope. Okay. <laughs> this is uh, one. This more is one for of the rare industri- moments. Mm-hmm. This is a good one. This is a, a horrible industrial disaster in the United okay. States. So, prop the idea yes. that human beings. Would get their clothing almost exclusively from stores, uh, and stores that were themselves stocked by massive factories that produce clothing at scale. That's pretty new. Didn't used to be that way okay. for most of human history, right? Yeah, uh, y- your ancient Romans, you know, your uh, your 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 Macedonians, uh, your um, uh, Carthaginians, yeah, uh, your Han China, they're not not walking into a department store and buying a bunch of like identical pairs of shorts. Didn't work yeah. that way. No ancient seers markets. Yeah. No ancient seers markets. Um, there, there is a free people buried with the library of Alexandria, but if that's Uh ever uncovered, uh, a plague will, will will be unleashed upon the world that will end all of society. Um, but Noted. yeah, not 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 a lot of mass-produced clothing back in the day. In fact, in the United States in 1791, which is not all that long ago, right? I've drank mm-hmm. at bars in Europe that are older than that. Uh, <laughs> history's greatest monster, Alexander Hamilton, estimated that between two-thirds and four-fifths of all clothing in the new United States was homemade. So basically, everything people had on their bodies in the early U.S. was something that like a family member had Yeah, yeah, before. mama made it. Yeah, mama made it, sister made it, grandma. whatever, grandma. Yeah. Um now that state of affairs didn't start to change until the mid 1840s with the development of the modern sewing machine but what really shifted matters in the United States at least was the Civil War cuz during the Civil War right you got you got all these assholes wanting to keep doing a slavery you got these yeah. guys who are generally less assholes wanting to stop them. And they, they conscript about two million men. The About yeah. two million men joined the Union Army over the course of that war. And all those guys, um, all those guys need uniforms, right? Um, mm-hmm. And two million dudes, you're not going to hand-sew all that shit, especially <laughs> since it's, half these motherfuckers are dropping dead right out the bat, <laughs> you know? <laughs> How about we just make 30
6: of them, and when you die, we just mm-hmm. take your pants off?
4: Yeah, we just take your pants, <laughs> take your shirt. Um... Yeah, so these guys uh, need mass-produced uniforms, and a lot of them mm-hmm. are um, a lot of them are immigrants, right? That's one of the big yeah. things about the union side. It shit, ton of these guys are Irish or German because those are like where people are coming to the United States from. Um, yeah. And so most of these people had been dirt poor for most of their lives. They had like one or two sets of clothing that they owned, and it was stuff mm-hmm. that like their family made and maintained. Suddenly, they join the military, and they get these mass-produced uniforms in standardized sizes. Um, now. And this is probably, for most of them, the, the first mass-produced clothing on their body. And today, you know, you you brag that, like, oh, this this shirt's handmade, right? My pants were, yeah. like, hand-sewn. And that's a, that's a mark of higher quality than, like, a factory-made yeah. piece of clothing. Not necessarily the case back then, right? Because your clothing's often made by mom or dad or grandma or sis, and they're not always good at it, you know? Yeah. <laughs>
6: like, <laughs> <laughs> most Man. people
4: aren't good at most things, so, like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
6: That's crazy. Of, you know, what I think about, like, just how culture is just continues to evolve. Like, we, you know, in the 50s, we had to teach America to throw stuff away. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just the idea of recycling and stuff like that. Like, I thought about the milkman trope. And I was like, mm-hmm. dude, you had glass bottles and a dude came to the house and refilled them. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yo, that's some, like, Silicon Valley, like, greenery fools are bragging about having their own chickens you know like that's like I got chickens mm-hmm. I make eggs in the. I'm like dog you this this is not a flex do you know what I'm saying like this is what <laughs> culture was for centuries you know so yeah so hearing this is like it reminds me of that too I, I yeah I actually never thought of that like my mom made this sweater yeah I can tell
4: Yeah, I can see that. Um, I'm sure some of these clothes was, but for a lot of these soldiers, not only was this their first mass produced clothing, but it was the highest quality clothing they'd ever worn. And it was the best fitting clothing because it had been like specifically there were standardized sizes that were, you know, it was uh, a lot of folks kind of left the military after the Civil War with a real Mm -hmm. appreciation for manufactured clothing and a desire to, to own more of it. Um, so, in the 1870s, uh, the cutter's knife revolutionized the garment industry again. This was a mass produced utility knife, a kind of a box cutter's type device, razor sharp, and it allowed skilled users to cut out pieces that could then be sewn into hundreds of identical garments. So, We get the sewing machine. The Civil War gives a lot of people a taste for homemade clothing. Then in the 1870s, they invent a new kind of knife that lets you much more quickly mass produce quality garments. By the 1880s, all of the necessary technology for a clothes making revolution had been invented. The only thing missing was dirt cheap, easily replaceable labor, which Hmm. (laughs) if you know anything about how clothing is made today is a critical part Hmm. of cheap clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Truly nothing new. Mm-hmm. We needed, we've got everything but suffering poor immigrants to make the <laughs> pants. I um, <laughs> wonder if we could
6: find people that we don't got to pay that could do this all day for us.
4: Good news. <laughs> right around that time, a shitload of new immigrants start coming into the uni- United States. Now, when we're talking about the garment industry, it's about a third of these people are Italian. About two thirds of them are Jews from Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the Italians who come in that flood the garment industry are, are from Southern Italy. About 1.2 million of these people immigrate to the United States net in the first decade of the 1900s. Um, and then, you know, the, the remainder about two million people are Jews from from Eastern Europe. And both groups of refugees would heavily dominate the new garment industry. Mm -hmm. Um, These people were willing to work and able to work for very cheap because they were completely destitute. They were fleeing disasters uh, and different kinds of disasters. In the case of the Italians, that disaster was a man-made ecological tragedy uh, that will not sound familiar to anybody listening to this podcast and will never happen again anywhere in the world. Like, for example... The place where most Americans live. So I'm going to read a quote oh, uh, from a book by journalist Dave Vondrell. Quote. <laughs> The end of feudalism and of the papal states in the 19th century put millions of acres of Italian land in private hands. Nearly every new owner made the same decision, to cut down the trees, hoping to sell the lumber and expand the fields. The result was massive soil erosion along the hillsides of once beautiful southern provinces like Calabria, Basilicata, Apulia, and Campania. Topsoil washed into the rivers, ruining the farm economy. When the silted rivers flooded in the wet winter months, they created low stagnant pools and swamps, which in turn bred mosquitoes, which produced epidemics of malaria, without trees to hold the topsoil, what had been a tenuously balanced ecology became a strange and deadly combination of tropical disease and desert-like aridity. Conditions were worse on the island of Sicily, where, within sight of the blue sea, the grass is a lifeless brown and the road a powder of white. In many regions, it is necessary to go long distances to procure drinking water. As one early writer on Italian immigration explained, so they, it's the like, dust bowl shit. That yeah, I was going to say their version of the dust the bowl. Center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they're a version of what's coming for California and a sizable chunk of Oregon like this summer.
6: <laughs> yeah, it's 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 on its way, guys, like this mm-hmm.
4: yeah, yeah. so this is why I think we've all watched Five Will Goes West, uh, the famed documentary about Italian immigration into the United States. Course, this there's is no why cats in America, yeah, yeah, there's no cats destroying all of the trees and leading the topsoil to leach into the rivers, creating stagnant death pits. Yeah, um, so yeah. Now, obviously, Italians are a significant part of the growing garment industry's workplace, but they were vastly outnumbered by Russian Jews, uh, not just Jew- – well, Jews from w- what was Russia, which included modern-day mm-hmm. Ukraine and Poland. Yeah. Um, most of these Jewish immigrants came from what was called the Pale of Settlement, which was within the Russian Empire, the limited swath of territory that Jews were allowed to inhabit under the Tsar's regime. Remember, this yeah. is a – this there's 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 like – there's an apartheid system for Jewish people in Russia during this time. Um, One of the few jobs that Jewish people were allowed to do during this period was garment making. And so that's part of why they became came to dominate the US garment industry is they huh. a lot of them men and women learned how to sew, learned how to make garments, did that for a living in kind of like small boutique the senses of the word when they were in Russia and then when they came to yeah. the United States, they had they had that skill right as the garment industry yeah. exploded. On March 13th, 1881, leftist revolutionaries in Russia killed Tsar Alexander II with a comically large bomb. Now, we yeah, mentioned hilarious. this a couple of times on the show because it's important. Um, but the czar had been a reformer. He's the guy who freed the serfs, and he'd been good to Russia's Jews, although good here is a term that means he didn't actively seek their extermination. Yeah. Despite the fact that Russian Jews had probably the least to gain from this czar's death, they were instantly blamed for masterminding the assassination. This is kind of the story of why all of these Jewish people yeah. immigrate to the United States. More than 30 cities erupted into anti-Semitic violence in the wake of the Tsar's assassination. Shlomo Lambrosa, writing in Modern Judaism uh, magazine, notes that in the wake of the Tsar's murder, quote, Jews were beaten, killed, and burned out of their homes. Each attack was more brutal than the preceding. Mass destruction, thousands killed, hundreds of thousands wounded, orphaned, and rendered homeless. This was the legacy of pogroms. Damn. Now. These pogroms were not ordered by anyone at the head of the Russian state, but they were extremely popular. Many pogroms were actively sponsored and organized by local Russian police. It was not until late summer, around August of 1881, that the Tsar's troops took action to halt the violence, and their intervention did not achieve any lasting peace. For the next Mm -hmm. three years after the Tsar's assassination, every spring would bring a new wave of pogroms. Journalist Dave Vondrell explains, quote, The pogroms flared anew each spring, at Easter, when local priests reminded their flocks that the Jews killed Christ just as they had killed the Tsar, and rumors circulated afresh that the Matzo of Passover was seasoned with the blood of slain Christian children. Along with the pogroms came severe restrictions on Jewish liberties. Access to higher education and professional jobs was cut off. The Russian heartland, including the capital, St. Petersburg, and the largest city, Moscow, was closed to Jews. Some were driven from the cities in chains." So God damn,
6: man, not a- it's still hard to hear, <laughs> you know, all the like, yeah. I know this story. I know a million times just the whole Russian revolution. Like, I don't think you understand the West, Western civilization until you really get your brain around that. And and I'm still it's still hard to hear where you're just like, what the fuck, guys? Like, sheesh, man. Sheesh. Yeah. And then and then. So you. You, you're you running this apartheid, you know, system, this caste system apartheid, and then, and then this Jewish community mess around, get good at it. Mm-hmm. And now you think they got magical powers because they're good at it. And, yeah, yeah. It's, it just bothers me every time I have to hear it.
4: It's not, I mean, it's one of those things, Russian history, there's a short list of, like, the darkest regions of the world when you study history, right? There's mm-hmm. particularly Africa during colonialism. Yeah. Um, there's China in like kind of the last two centuries or so during mm-hmm. like that, that they had a civil war that killed more people than World War II. Nobody ever talks about it. It's like in the 1800s. Yeah. Fucking wild. Um, there's obviously indigenous American history, but fucking yeah. Russian history is up there. Dog. <laughs> like <Dog>. good God. <laughs> it is wild. <laughs> like yeah. some shit goes down <laughs> in Russia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Major. <laughs> yes. And it so this is the late 1800s where this is all that these pogroms are starting to ramp up. The 1880s yeah. again, when when all of the stor- when everything sort of comes into place to make the modern garment industry possible, is also yeah. when the pogroms launch. And things only get worse for Russian Jews in the early 1900s. The Tsarist state was in a a situation we might call the crumbles, which is a, a framing a, a friend mm-hmm. of mine uses to describe what we're ha- what's happening in the United States right now. Wow, it's the early stages of dissolution before the collapse of the government revolutionary Mm -hmm. sentiment was at an all-time high. There were constant protests against an incompetent and inefficient government which many Russians rightly saw had left them decades behind the rest of the world. Tsar Nicholas II was a coward and an idiot, and he had no idea how to right the ship, but he was cunning enough to blame the Jews for all of Russia's problems. His regime launched a massive propaganda campaign which included producing the protocols of the elders of Zion and a number of anti-Semitic newspapers. One of the best known was called Bessarabets, and the city of Kishinev And this is part of the province of Bessarabia, which is why it's called mm-hmm. Bessarabets. I'm sure I'm pronouncing everything wrong. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to I <laughs> Come on, man. Like yeah. um Yeah. It's all good. If I'm not going to get England right, I'm certainly not getting Russia yeah, right. Yeah, 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 Don't. <laughs> yeah. Don't. Yeah. It's fine so Bessarabets was the only daily newspaper in the entire province which meant that it was the de- by default the only thing most Russian Christians had a chance to read every day for the news and it was focused around anti-Semitism in 1903 a Christian girl who worked as a domestic servant for a Jewish family in the city of Kishinev committed suicide Bessarabets oh, com- lost no time in claiming that she had been murdered so her blood could be used to make matzo bread now this all happened right before oh. Easter Sunday and it ended in a mob of 2000 people rioting through the Jewish section of town 45 people were murdered some by having nails driven into their skulls a baby a live baby was used to break windows on Jewish shops as like what? a yeah like yeah i mean it's it's fucking what? bad yeah god dumb. um is it's that that's where bad. that whole like
6: yeah that's where that whole mythos about you know Jews drinking blood for what the blood libel and all that stuff
4: yeah i mean it it, this is an ad that starts centuries earlier right like that's old as hell um but this was just i mean this there's god only knows how many thousands of people get killed over that myth over the course of like that's like a thousand years old you know oh Um, yeah but yeah this is yet another time when it erupted into violence God damn now, it, man. Kishinev was followed by other pogroms around Russia, and everything kept escalating. In 1904, when Tsar Nicholas II decided that going to war with Japan seemed like a good idea, now, if you know any, you know anything about the Russian Navy today? <laughs> Nothing about the Navy today. <laughs> well. The Russian Navy today has exactly one aircraft carrier, the Admiral Kuznetsov, which has sunk itself a couple of times and runs off of what is essentially like unfiltered, unprocessed diesel oil. Something called (laughs) mazut, which is like the dirty, like it keeps catching on fire. It keeps killing its sailors. It's like always burning. It It has to be tugged everywhere it goes. It's not a great Navy today is what I'm saying. Yeah, I was was like, they focused on land power. Yeah. yeah yeah they don't really need a navy the way that you know other countries do to in order yeah. to in order based to on a geography
6: power. i'll yeah. blame them based on a geography yeah being like there's there's not water for a but, long time <laughs> if you know? you know anything about japan
4: pretty fucking good at navies this is <laughs> like, this is what they do yeah i was, I was yeah, gonna say we're coming to japan this is at what we do navy especially yeah. the early 1900s and so yeah. the worst navy in Europe goes up against the best navy in Asia and it yeah. it does not go very well for russia yeah um and really the only people surprised are racists um yeah. but obviously this is a huge political disaster russia loses a huge chunk of their navy a fuckload of men a lot of prestige and Tsar nicholas needs an excuse for the disaster that follows and of course he blames the jews even yeah, though they like, had yeah, absolutely well, nothing to like, do with this how about those dudes uh, it's those guys those guys that's <laughs> yeah. why i picked a fight with the people who are better at this than us but it's you You literally guys we've been killing for years that are responsible
6: yeah you literally took a knife to a gunfight this is exactly that's where the saying Mm -hmm. comes from this is what y'all did
4: yeah Mm -hmm. you took a knife to a for a gunfight to a gunfight and then you blamed the group of people you don't allow to own knives (laughs) (laughs) you you blame the cooks yeah yeah a uh, a huge wave of anti-Jewish sentiment lights up in Russia again. These paramilitary groups called the Black Hundreds rise up. And these guys are like pro-monarchist Russian fascist group. Well, fascist mm-hmm. might be the wrong way. Anyway, they're, they're, they're a bunch of assholes. They start yeah. murdering Jewish people to punish them for what they and the Tsar's press described as conspiring with the enemy. The Black Hundreds openly stated that, quote, the extermination of the Jews was their goal. Now, the very worst campaigns of anti-Semitic violence broke out the next year in 1905, um, but this was still related to the war with Japan because the defeat in 1904 um, leads to mass unrest and protests and kind of a revolution I mean, mm-hmm. a revolution. And yeah. in order to kind of clamp down on it, the czar is forced to grant his people a constitution. And not like a good constitution. Yeah, true. yeah, yeah. Broadly speaking, better than, I mean, they hadn't really had anything. Um, now, this enrages Russian monarchists who want the czar to be an autocrat. Uh, and a lot of these guys respond to the czar compromising with revolutionaries by carrying out pogroms. And in fact, in November of 19... 19- across the Russian Empire, there are 600 different pogroms. That's 20 Sheesh. pogroms a, uh, per day for the entire Sheesh. month. Yeah. Um, so I'm doing this to explain the fact that in like a 10-year period, 2 million Euro- Eastern European Jews moved to the United States. Yeah, And this is why. <laughs> yeah, it was I like, it's on a go, because, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we <laughs> a lot yeah. of them are very, like... Very accurately seeing what's going to come in the 1940s yeah. and going, well, shit, we got to get the fuck out of here.
6: <laughs> yeah, the 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 Jewish like historical trauma, mm-hmm. like the idea of just and their antennas of knowing when like shit finna go bad. Like, mm-hmm. trust them. Like, they, mm-hmm. like they know. So yeah, then being like, you know what, I think it's time. All right, I'm I'm gonna head out. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Gonna when, I think it's time for us to roll. Like, you know, there's a pretty. It's a story, like, uh, with with my uh, my wife and her siblings. Like, they when they were trying to, like, you know, we're kids, and they were trying to, like, you know, steal some makeup from the corner store or whatever. Like, their brother was like, hey, it's we need to go. It's time to leave now. And they were like, no, let's just get one more thing, one more thing. And, of course, they both got caught, you know. But the brother yeah. bounced because he got the antenna of, like, yeah it's time it's time for me to roll and that's it's crazy because it's like that's actually a a one thing that's important about your hood antennas that when you at a party you should be able to read the room to be like all right it's Mm -hmm. it's
4: probably gonna go down pretty soon i think it's time for me to slide yeah i mean there's just i mean this is a little off topic but there's not a whole lot that's more important in life than having a good antenna for like i shouldn't be here (laughs) yes (laughs) yes time for me to get the fuck out i think it's time for me to get the fuck out of here yes (laughs) not gonna make a big deal about it not gonna say anything but i shouldn't be here not gonna be in this room
6: (laughs) yeah i think i'm gonna slide i think i'm gonna slide bro i see i holla at y'all later man i think it's time for me to slide Mm -hmm. Yup. you gotta know know where where people
4: should be prop
5: oh this is gonna not well
4: drop a load on them where they supposed to be robert they're supposed to be enjoying the products and services that support this podcast. Yes, they are. hmm Because the products and services that support this podcast, and this is our only guarantee, oh. have never orchestrated a campaign of pogroms across the Russian Empire. All right. And Not a thing you. any of our supporters have done.
5: Mm-hmm. Fair enough.
4: And, and they will mm-hmm. tell you when it's time to slide.
5: And they will tell they you will. when it's they time will. To slide. Fair enough.
4: hmm Yeah if i know anyone who i trust to tell me when to get out of an area it's the dick pills guys or maybe hello fresh
5: yeah.
4: <laughs> okay here's some ads
0: happy pride from tomboy x celebrating pride and the queer community all year queer founded queer run and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com.
1: Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
7: Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims
8: including the DNA of a potential killer.
4: Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up.
8: Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut. And I didn't say anything all these years. I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah,
4: we are back and um, just having the best time talking about the economic and environmental collapse of Italy and waves of racism in Russia that allowed Americans to have cheap shirts in the early 1900s. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> um, so, like I said, uh, all this violence in Russia leads a lot of Eastern European Jews to decide, like, we should, we should bounce. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, more than 2 million of them uh, pick up their lives and flee to the United States in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Now, two of these desperate, hopeful Jewish immigrants were Isaac Harris and Max Blanc. Both were born in Russia in the late 1860s. They fled their homes in the late 1880s, when they were young men in their 20s, after, you know, all of those pogroms convinced them there wasn't a whole lot of hope in Russia. Yep. By the early 1890s, they both made it through Ellis Island and settled in New York. Harris had trained as a tailor back in the old country, so he knew how to make garments, and he set up a shop in the burgeoning garment industry. Max Blanc was an entrepreneur, and he got to work as a garment contractor. So this is how a huge amount of the fabric industry worked at the time. Then as now, factories had to obey more rules with regular employees than they did with contract workers. And it also costs money to operate a big factory. So a lot of garment makers would hire independent contractors who would themselves hire workers and then pay them out of a lump sum they received from the manufacturer. Both Blanc and Harris got their start in the sweatshop years of uh, of the garment industry. and Yeah. Sweatshop is a term we all hear Um, Mm -hmm. the way what we call a sweatshop today. It's kind of the term for like a giant factory with poor labor standards, right? Yeah. That's not what it originally was. Like The the, the factories that we would consider today sweatshops were actually a reaction to sweatshops that were significantly less horrible than sweatshops. And to explain what the original sweatshop was, I'm going to quote from the book Triangle, the fire that changed America by Dave Vondrell. Quote. Today, the word sweatshop describes any crowded factory of poorly paid workers. But in the late 1800s, the meaning was more specific and more dismal. Sweatshops were generally dim and claustrophobic tenement rooms where independent contractors sweated greenhorns, that is, the newest immigrants, by working them more and more hours for less and less pay. So... You have these big garment companies that have like, okay, this is what we want you to make, and we'll we'll contract, you know, say we have a dress, right? And there's two or three pieces yeah. of the dress that are sewn together. You hire two or three different independent contractors with their own teams of seamstresses, and they will each produce a part, and then you'll have it put together, you know, by somebody else. Yeah. And each of these independent contractors just packs as many laborers as possible into a tiny, low-income apartment room, and that's a sweatshop, Right. Um, and you're basically trying to like get these people to do as much work as possible for as little money as possible. And when they complain, you replace them.
6: Yeah. Did y'all call them, did he call them greenhorns?
4: Yeah. Greenhorns. These are immigrants who just got to the country.
6: Okay. That's the phrase. Wow. That's it. Wow. There's no, there's no bottom to slurs. Is there?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Wait, I mean, I, I guess I, th- I didn't think about. That. I mean, I'm, sh- I guess you could call it a slur. Hmm. Maybe it's not a slur. I don't know. Yeah, I think it, it, was, it was meant as just like they're new. They don't know how things work. They're oh, they're, so it's they like don't green. Have, like like yeah, they're, yeah, they're like inexperienced. Right, uh, not
6: right. Okay,
4: and they don't know. They don't, you know, they don't know enough to advocate for themselves. They don't Got speak it. the language. They don't have connections, so you can take advantage of them. And when they start okay. to realize they're being taken advantage of. If they're not worth paying more money, you fire them and you go. Basically, there were these like big market areas where you would find people who had just gotten off the boat and you would just hire them up in mass, throw them into sweatshops, work them until they couldn't handle it anymore or until they got sick and died. Because these filthy apartments crammed full of people sewing disease spreads pretty like a shitload of of people die from disease in these places. Yeah. Um, now, sweatshop work was miserable, but it was also inconsistent. Most weeks when there was a busy season, workers would be on for at least eight, 80 hours at the low end to more than 100 hours of labor at the high end. God, hey. Some of these people made as little as $3 a week if they were new. Good wages were kind of more like $15 a week. Um, I think kind of a, a more common salary was like seven to eight, something like that. Um Many of them were promised good rates, like fifteen dollars a week, but found out on payday that the needle and thread they used to make the garments was actually taken out of their paycheck. So obviously, these are because these are independent contractors. They're Uh, they're being hired by the big company. There's a bunch of ways they can fuck over the little guy, and there's no, there's no labor board. There's no way for people who aren't rich to get justice. I mean, there's not really a lot of ways to do that now. (laughs) Like back then, you had even less options. Um, there is nobody looking out for these people. Um, now the downside, so the upside of the sweatshop system is that it allows manufacturers to do their jobs for a lot cheaper. You don't have to rent a big factory. You don't have to deal with labor problems. Um, and you don't have to, one of the really big benefits is your fact, you may have hundreds of workers, but they work in dozens of different sweatshops. None of them know each other. How the hell are they going to unionize? You know, they can't.
6: Does this this kind of smell like the gig economy a little bit? Like I'm kinda like oh, it oh, smells really? a little Uber like. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. like, oh, you're you're a taxi yeah. company that don't own no cars. So mm-hmm. and I gotta so I gotta pay for all the upkeep for my car. And yes. so I'm paying for I'm paying for my gas. I'm paying for all.
4: Okay. Yeah. Not original or new, what Uber and Lyft and their fellow uh soulless monsters do
6: okay cool i was like why does this sound so familiar
4: to me okay Mm mm-hmm Um, so yeah, yeah, this is kind of a gig economy thing now. So those are all the advantages of the sweatshop system, but it has disadvantages too. one of them Mm -hmm. is that because you're splitting it up, you're having all these different teams do parts of the, the, whatever garment you're assembling, say it's a dress, right? You have four different teams, each doing a part. You have to transport all of the different parts they're making to one area and have them put together. Um, it's less efficient, right? Which means you make less clothing, uh, over a longer period of time. Um, And yeah, the other issue is that like it's dangerous. Conditions are incredibly cramped, nasty, and very flammable. Right? We're talking fabric, which burns yeah. pretty well. If you ever lit someone's clothing on fire, yeah. um, but we're also Not talking about bad. a shitload of cotton, like processed yeah. cotton, which is explosive. If you've ever like gotten a large amount of cotton and lit that shit, that fucking that goes off like a bomb. Fast. Yeah, yeah, very fast. And there's a bunch of like basically, um, um, um graph paper, tracing paper that you use Uh to like cut out the things, which is also incredibly flammable. So fires start in these places all the time. Um, And to kind of give more of a more detail about the conditions of these early sweatshops, I want to read a description of one in the 1890s by a union leader named Bernard Weinstein. Quote, The boss of the shop lived there with his entire family. The front room and kitchen were used as workrooms. The whole family would sleep in one dark bedroom. The sewing Mm. machines for the operators were near the windows of the front door. The basters would sit on stools near the walls at the center of the room amid the dirt and dust were heaped great piles of materials. On top of the sofas, several finishers would be working. While the older workers would keep the irons hot and press the finished garments on special boards. So these are dangerous well, places and just, whenever there's a fire or something or whenever you lose workers you also lose productivity so that's the main issue yeah. here is it's inefficient it's cheap it but seems it's so inefficient. yeah it seems so i'm
6: just musty and steamy as then the term sweatshop yep. clearly like was yep. there were they dyeing fabric too so was there like a lot of like chemicals around in there some too? of these yeah. yeah yeah
4: yeah there's a lot of like again not long lives in the garment industry yeah just a, a, a lot of these bucket people. of turpentine. Turpentine, yeah. just acetone yeah. right there in the corner, yeah it's probably fair to say that few people in this country today outside of maybe the agricultural industry, work a a more dangerous or less healthy gig than sweatshop workers in this yeah. period It's a bad business my mother in law in the downtown like garment district for before
6: she retired that's what she did it wasn't a sweat we could say we could say definitively it wasn't a sweatshop, you know, but she was definitely a seamstress in downtown and they paid her pennies. And, mm-hmm. but her ability, like now, like her ability to make things and to fix them. Like I still marvel. Like she's kind of a mystery. She still doesn't really speak English. Well, she does. She just don't like to. So she's still kind of a mystery to me, but her ability to like, yeah, her craft craftsmanship of like, of, of being a seamstress is still out of this world to me. And my, my wife still has stories of like, I would be embarrassed about it. But yeah, my mom's like holes in our clothes didn't matter, but she would never like let us let them see her work environment because it was so awful.
4: Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's certainly not a nice job to have now. Um, yeah. But at least but it wasn't this. as a general it rule, definitely it's wasn't less, flammable. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> less flammable. Yeah. Yes. Less flammable. People understand germ theory better. There's upsides. Yes. Umicides. Yes. Um, So this nightmare industry is the one that Blanc and Harris start in when they move to the United States. Now Harris came up, started working in the US in sweatshops filled with other immigrants and he paid careful attention to the popular fashions of the day and to the different methods of mass production. Blanc meanwhile made a small fortune as one of the most successful contractors in the city so Blanc is running sweatshops and uh, Harris is like a highly paid, like, because some of these people do make good money, right? The ones who are doing the really difficult, the technical Work the shit that not that many people can do. Yeah. Um, and he's one of those guys. And the two men meet through marriage in the late 1890s. And I'm going to quote from a write up in PBS's American Experience here. Harris and Blanc were compatible, and they decided to enter a partnership that would capitalize on Blanc's business sense and Harris's industry expertise. In 1900, they founded the Triangle Waste Company and opened their first shop on Wooster Street. At the turn of the century, the shirtwaist was a new item. Styled after menswear, shirtwaists were looser and more liberating than Victorian-style bodices, and they were becoming popular with the burgeoning population of female workers in New York City. Mm. Harris knew the details of garment production and the machinery involved in making a cost-effective and worthy product. Blanc was the salesman, constantly meeting with potential buyers and traveling to stores that carried their product. They took advantage of new technology, installing mechanical sewing machines, which were five times faster than those run by a foot pedal. They priced their shirtwaists modestly, averaging about $3 each. And this is all occurring at the same time as the women's liberation movement is really yeah. picking up, right? This is the period women don't have the right to vote yet, but they're agitating for it. Women are starting to join the workplace in larger numbers, and the shirtwaist is a is not just a popular garment that's fashionable; it's a liberatory garment, right? Mm. It's like a blouse, it's like a sundress, kind of in some ways, but it is a lot. You, if you look at the old Victorian fashion, those like whale bone corsets, those massive dresses that you can't walk yeah. through a doorway in. Things that limit a woman's ability to move around in the world, a shirtwaist uh-huh. doesn't. It's comfortable. You can run in it. You can exert yourself in it, um, and it looks good. Um, so this is like all kind of happening at the big time, and Blanc and Harris capitalize on this explosion in 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 the because sh- the shirtwaist is like a, a phenomenon in this period of time.
6: Yeah, kind of a kind of a justice issue. That's crazy mm-hmm. that it becomes like a symbol of freedom that's crazy okay yeah this is getting
4: complicated yeah. Yeah. all right i'm wearing something that i can work in i can exert yes. myself in. i can dance in i can you know live an independent life not needing to be carried around because yeah. my clothing stops me from breathing you know
6: yo yeah because um, whoever's idea was pre this to like yeah to tie another like some just umbrellas around your waist to make your dress bigger was just who, who, whose idea with this this is ridiculous mm-hmm
4: Yeah. Um, Now, part of making the garment production cost effective was consolidating for for Blank and Harris and some other guys who were kind of like similar thinkers to them, like big wigs, Mm -hmm. people who are emerging to be major leaders in the garment industry. Yeah. They start to realize the sweatshop isn't the way to go if we're really going to scale this up, Right, it has some Mm -hmm. benefits, it makes some things easier on us, but we can't make clothing at the same quality and at the same scale that we could if we had large centralized factories where we're paying for the sewing machines. So it's not some contractor mm. buying the cheapest foot pump sewing machines. Yeah. We've got modern electric ones and rows. So they they start to get factories. And Harris and Blanc are two early guys who get massive garment factories to make these shirt waists. Um in 1902, they start the Triangle Factory uh, out of the Ash Building in Greenwich Village. And mm-hmm. this is the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, which is, you know, what the story we're talking about today is like the the classic American story of like what we would now call a sweatshop going up in flames and killing a bunch of people. It's important to understand that when this factory is started, it is a massive improvement over the original sweatshops and is considered an ultra modern facility, right? Wow. Because it's, it's, it's cleaner, it's nicer, it's bigger there's room um it had been built in 1901 so the year before they opened the factory unlike tenements which are often made out of just like wood and kind of like low quality materials this building is mostly made out of steel and iron it's advertised as being fireproof by its architects which is some titanic thinking yeah Yeah, there (laughs) it is thanks it's the building that can't burn down (laughs) yeah
6: yeah i guess if every other building is basically paper mache you gonna be like, yeah, this one. At least this is metal. So I could see the, I could see the confidence. But bro, man, can't ever yep. let that come out your mouth. That's what his dreams yeah,
4: teach you. Yeah. yeah, you call something uh uh unburned downable, and it's gonna burn down. That's just yeah, how you're, you're asking for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's why I always advertise everything I make as very flammable and dangerous. You do. Yes, this um, is dangerous. Be careful. Mm-hmm. I do. So. Shirtwaist manufacturing involved a lot of, again, flammable things. There's a great deal of thin paper cutouts for tracing. Uh, There's thousands of pounds. Because you're making in such volume, there's thousands of pounds of dry fabric and cotton um, that are kind of like tossed aside as you're making Mm -hmm. shirtwaists. Now, the fact that this factory is not made out of wood, like tenements, is a huge plus. But the ash building was far from safe. It had poor ventilation. It was badly lit. It had incredibly narrow stairwells, And it had no functional fire escape. It had a fire escape, um, but the fire escape on the building ended directly like 10 feet or something above a basement skylight. So, like, we're falling into. (laughs) And when they when they build this thing like the city is like hey this fire escape isn't up to code and the architect is like don't worry we'll fix it asap and then nothing happens right um it looked pretty on this
6: side and look when you look down from the fire escape you see that beautiful light coming up i'm telling you it's amazing Mm -hmm. it's an aesthetic choice
4: just 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 like the the titanic it's lovely yeah (laughs) now the most dangerous thing about the factory may have been that it was tall harris and blanc rented out the eighth ninth and tenth floors now the reason this is dangerous is that the new york city fire department could their ladders only reached six floors up so you can't get water to the eighth ninth and tenth floors and you can't evacuate people using fire engines from the eighth ninth and tenth floors right Pretty oh clear God. problem. you playing on the edge, bro. Yeah. Now, I just... I noted earlier, the Triangle Factory was in a lot of ways a huge advancement in terms mm-hmm. of just like quality of life for the people working there. And I don't want to pretend yeah. like it's not. This would have been a significant improvement in a lot of people's eyes. But that doesn't mean it didn't have a lot of problems outside of yeah. being super flammable. And there was a lot of the fact that now uh, Harrison Blanc and people like them are putting all these workers together in factories. The benefit of that is they're more productive. The downside of that for a manager's perspective is now all these guys are talking and they're talking about how Uh-oh. much they're getting paid and they're talking about how much the boss is fucking them and they're developing a sense of solidarity. And what do you Uh-oh. get when that happens? You get motherfucking Unions. strikes. Yep. yep. Oh, yeah. Unions. Look. Now, the striking at the Triangle Factory actually predated any kind of garment union existing there. Their first strike in 1908 was what's called a wildcat strike, which is when workers just go on strike without having a union, right? Okay. And it's actually a big fight because, like, one of the – so they – we'll talk about that in a minute. So there's this big wildcat strike in 1908, uh, and and this kind of feeds into – a broader trend in the city of New York, which is the center of U.S. garment manufacturing, and a lot of garment makers are going on strikes, wildcat strikes. They're starting to form unions, 1908, 1909, um, because they're realizing they're making a small number of people a shitload of money, and they're getting treated terribly. Um, mm-hmm. These people had, you know, because they were now inside, you know, these factories that weren't strike-proof, um, they could uh, they could organize like this. Yeah. Um And one of the problems of this is that, like, the bigger when you have these huge factories um, that are the entire operating profit of these corporations, that actually makes them more vulnerable to strikes because they're paying rent on this massive space. They're paying for all this electricity. They're paying every day, even when the workers don't come in. So the longer you're able to keep workers on strike, the more money you cost the bosses, which provides extra pressure to the bosses. Um, So the fact that this could for obviously the bosses consider any kind of strike to be like an existential threat, which leads them to embrace a bunch of union busting tactics. Now, the most basic tactic involved just the layout of the facility itself. And in the case of the Triangle Factory, Harris had designed the layout of the the sewing floor specifically to make it hard for workers to have conversations. That's the first way you try to stop this, make it difficult for them to talk to each other, right? Yeah. But people find a way to talk to each other. It's something people are always going to do. This doesn't work for long. And as time goes on, the bosses need to develop more advanced tactics to bust unions. One of them was what's called the inside contractor system. This was an attempt to merge the benefits of like the contractor system that the sweatshops operated under with the strength of the factory. Management mm-hmm. would give, would basically rent space on the assembly floor to a contractor who they paid a lump sum to make clothing and that contractor would hire workers which he then paid out of the lump sum so right it's an it's 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 the same basic idea wow. if we separate these workers from the corporation um then they're going to be focused on if they're angry on this independent contractor who hired them yeah and also he's going to side with us because he's going to be employing these people but that's actually not how it worked out as a general rule these inside contractors um considered themselves to be workers rather than management and they were as liable yeah. to go on strike as the workers
6: See, so, I still again, think, I still mm-hmm. think, man, like I try not to do, be too reductive for very vastly. Like you don't want to oversimplify the complicated. Yeah. And then at the same time, you don't want to overcomplicate the simple, you know. So I know both of those things are important. That said, I'm like, y'all doing everything except for just just pay, pay the workers and treat them well. Like if you well, really but- want to stop a union like it's just if you just want us to I, like I think about that all the time I don't know if y'all saw the story about Applebee's offering free appetizers if you come interview for a job
1: mm-hmm. and I'm like
6: you get a free app with an interview I'm like or you could just pay more like if you just paid more or just have some transparency even if it's as simple as like look dude that's how much the building costs This how much the electricity costs this is what we can afford. Now, are y'all, you know what I'm saying? Like, we're going to treat you as best as we can. This is what we got. Like, anybody reasonable would be like, all right, well, let me make an educated decision. to be like, all right, cool. If that's what y'all can handle, you sh- you show me that's what you can handle. Okay, word. But you talking about you're going to offer some free apps? I can get, you know what I'm saying? I can get the hot wings. I'm like, well, or you could just, just pay better. And I just, so yeah, mm. when I'm like, you coming up with all these schemes and ways to, yeah, redesign the whole floor so y'all don't talk, or.
5: It's like when a company's like, just, oh, we're going to have a holiday party, or we're going to have pizza today. It's like, or you could pay us.
6: Yeah, it's, it's like, you know, days. casual Fridays. Yeah. Like, I'm like, or, or, or.
5: Hear me out. Health insurance, just, that's good.
6: <laughs> yeah. You <laughs> could yeah. just pay or, as well. Or
4: a dental plan. Yeah, Or a
6: maybe, dental Maybe plan. just a dental plan. It's the edit button on Twitter. I'm like, you doing all it's the this way stuff. shit?
4: Always works.
5: Man, <sighs> yeah, would we be doing great with an edit button on Twitter? Bro? I'm just like,
6: what the hell are these stories? You go, so so now you putting all this shit on the thing, and I'm like, I feel like we've all just been asking for an edit button. Now, I, not that I have no horse in the race with this particular, with that particular example, but I could say for a lot of years, that's all we've been asking of Twitter. I mean, all this other stuff you're doing is great, but just—I don't know, man.
4: Seems simple.
5: Yep. Anyway, you know what else is simple? Yeah, it—it it could. Oh, I'm setting you up. Uh, here, the Robert. products it's and time for it's time ooh, for that services
4: thing. that support this podcast. Why not not
5: sad about it? What's happening? You love products. I mean, and
4: services. I'm just thinking about the way the corporate system works and, and how, sad it how it we're all. You? Kind of a bummer with this engine of death. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, here's ads.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating Pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com.
1: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime?
7: Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies every day is a mission every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe listen to crime stories with nancy grace on the iheart radio app apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast
8: i'm scott weinberger journalist and former deputy sheriff in my new podcast series cold-blooded
4: Ah, we're back and we're having a good time just to just Are we? not thinking about the modern day implications of the things yes. we're talking about here. <laughs> um, just a good way to do it. Yeah. Um, so the owners, we, we just talked about kind of these. They have a couple of different strategies they use to try to stop workers from unionizing. Um, and they're not very successful at this, uh, because it's really hard to stop people from not identifying with each other more than the bosses who are exploiting their excess productivity for profit. So... The owners of the triangle company next decided to create a fake union, the Triangle Employees Benevolent Association, which is actually kind of what happens to cops before police unions were a thing. Right. That's what police benevolent associations start as Mm. is like fake unions because cops can't unionize. Obviously, they get the ability to unionize and it's a horrible problem. But the triangle owners try the same thing. They make an employee benevolent association and their hope is that they can use that to siphon off this energy. Uh, That's going into the union movement Mm -hmm. um, and kind of push it somewhere that can't harm their bottom line. But since the union was run by relatives of Blanc and Harris, it was obvious to the workers what was going on. They're never as dumb as the bosses think they are. Ever. So Blanc and Harris justified their attempts to stop unionization by claiming they had a competitive need to keep prices low. The reality was that their business was bringing in more than a million dollars a year by 1908, which is the modern equivalent of $30 million. Both men were extremely comfortable. They both owned mansions on the west side. Harris had four family servants. Blanc had five. They both had chauffeured cars, deliver them to work every day. And this is when, like, just having Mm. a car means you're doing pretty good, you know? yeah yeah where yeah. you go for sunday drives yes because you got um, one yeah <laughs> yeah and these guys not only have cars they have cars and they have drivers um wow. and the triangle family uh factory isn't their only factory they have factories in new jersey and pennsylvania they own a couple of different companies making garments these guys are very well off so they're not they're not doing this shit cl- just it's the same thing with like mcdonald's today or whatever they're not clamping down on employee organizing, same with McDonald's. They're not clamping down on salaries because it's the only way to be profitable. They're doing it because they want to have uh, fortunes. Now, what was happening to the Triangle Factory was emblematic of an explosion across the garment industry. A handful of tycoons were becoming unfathomably wealthy where thousands of workers made as little as $3 a week mm-hmm. for more than 80 hours of painstaking labor. And I'm going to quote from PBS again. Harrison Blanc's factory was competing with over 11,000 other textile manufacturers in New York City. In order to retain their high profit level, they had to produce the cheapest shirt in the largest quantity. They demanded greater efficiency from their production team, which meant working long hours for little pay, and the owners kept scrupulous inventory of their supplies. A foreman monitored the largely female immigrant workforce during the day and inspected mm. the women's bags as they left for the night. As an additional safeguard against theft, Max Blanc ordered the secondary exit door to be locked. So, oh I think so back to made... our episode on the Bolano supermarket fire. Yes. A super flammable workspace always has a locked exit. Yeah. That, that's got to come into play.
3: <laughs>
6: yeah. What is that term called? A secure, like a secure pinch? Like, I forget what that term a cha- is. A but choke
4: point. Yeah. A
6: choke point. Yeah. You created a choke yeah. point because you worried about these ladies stealing needles and thread. All right. Mm-hmm. Got it. Put everybody yeah. life in danger.
4: Yeah, now everyone's endangered. Yay. Yeah. But they're not thinking about that. And to be fair, one of the things I should note here, we're talking about all of this unionizing and workers are angry, they're agitating for better conditions. The unions aren't agitating for better safety conditions. That's not really on anyone's Def. mind right now, right? The this thought is hasn't not crossed a safety my, huh? conscious period. Yeah. The thought no, hasn't crossed. Cr- less-
6: yeah. I had I you dude, what an important context wrinkle. Yeah. Is like mm-hmm safety's not on anyone's mind that's crazy like i forgot about that like that ain't even crossed their mind
4: i mean there are i'm not gonna say it's not on anyone's mind because there are there are garment fires like the month before the triangle shirtwaist fire there's a horrible fire that kills like 26 people Uh, and i'm sure there are individuals who are like we need to but but when you're talking about the broader union movement safety is not one of the things they're pushing for in a big way um, yeah,
6: it, it's like, and, yeah. And this
4: is, again, this is the point at which a work week is 80 to like 110 hours. So they like their concern is like, <laughs> it's a relief if I die on the job because I don't have to do <laughs> yeah. another week, you know,
6: like because <laughs> I got to be here for another 17 hours.
4: Yeah. God dumb. Um, yeah. So that that's not really the focus of the the when we, we're talking about the complaints the workers have. Poor safety isn't really one of them in a in way. I'm, I'm
6: guessing way. if your other option is like, okay, I could either stay here in New York and do this 80 hour week in this building, or I could go down to Virginia and dig in a coal mine. That seemed a lot more dangerous than this. So I guess if well, yeah. you're talking <laughs> relatively, it's like, well, I'm not working with dynamite. Dang.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, and you're also thinking again. These are all two thirds of these people are refuge Jewish refugees from Eastern Europe who are like, yeah, yeah the building's flammable. But nobody's actively trying to beat me to death with my own baby.
2: <laughs> yes.
4: Yes.
6: You're not beating. Yes. Yeah. In a cut. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And Russia so, was again, so late to the game to modernize
6: anyway. Yeah.
4: When you're trying to get in people's heads in this period, you have to acknowledge even the very wealthy and comfortable have a higher Acceptance of danger threshold than the average yeah. person, like the average working class person on the street today, because life was just more dangerous in a lot of ways. <laughs> life was just. just 1900s was yeah. dangerous. This is it was just a, a fucked up time. Yeah, was just <laughs> dangerous. Yes. So. In the fall of 1909, a new union had gotten started among New York garment workers, headed by a bold young woman named Clara Lemlich. Over the course of the year, Lemlich had unionized garment workers from other factories, large and small, and successfully brought many of them, many of their employers, to the table to increase wages. The big thing Lemlich and her fellow unionists were fighting for was a 52-hour work week. So that's the like again. Eventually, Whoa. this this feeds into the this massive nationwide fight yeah. for the 40 hour work week at the time they're yeah. like the work week is 80 plus hours they're like 52 that 52. sounds relaxing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
6: damn bro. 52 hour work was yeah. being a break let's go yeah
4: 40 yeah, percent more than a standard work week for an american yeah. today is was yeah. like woo this will be nice this is great Although a lot of americans work you know that much yeah. these days yeah. yeah not to minimize that but at the time the idea that you would only have to work 52 hours was like something worth fighting for um And they were also fighting for more regular and fairer pay scales, right? They wanted to know exactly what they were getting and not have these surprise, like, Oh, you've got to pay for the thread. Like they were fighting for all of this shit. Um, and yeah, they were fighting for a survivable wage. The minimum wage isn't a, really a big buzzword at this time, but yeah. that's kind of, they're fighting for within their industry, that kind of an idea. Mm-hmm. Now, Blanc and Harris first fought back against this by threatening to fire any employees who joined the union that Limlick uh, had created. because And their justification was that it was competing with their fake in-house union. Mm-hmm. They followed through on the promise, shuttering their factory and publicly soliciting new employees and local papers when the union drive started. The triangle workers de- decided to strike in response. This meant that the workers who had been there, Limlich and them were like, okay, don't come to work. We'll hire new workers. Fuck you. And the workers are like, well, We'll surround the factory and we won't let these new employees in. We'll block them off. So the scabs can't enter. Like that's what a strike is in this period. It's not just not working. It's stopping the factory from being able to work. Now, this happened a, a number of times in like 1909 through 1910, and in a number of cases, these kind of attempts to blockade the factory ended with these horrific street battles, and that happened with the Triangle Factory. This is happening in other factories, too, right? This is a broad trend across New York. Um, The Triangle Factory is particularly large, and so what happens there is particularly significant. Now, you gotta remember, almost all of the strikers here are young women, Um, and Block and Harris countered them, so you've got all these young female strikers blocking the factory to stop scabs Mm -hmm. from going in. So, Block and Harris hire a bunch of scabs, but in order to get the scabs in, they need to fight their way through these women blockading the factory. And the way they do that is by hiring a phalanx of pimps and prostitutes oh, to act my as god. the tip of the spear and assault oh, the god. union workers.
6: <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! That is heartless. Wow. Yeah. Well, because they're
4: like you're talking, you're you're talking. If you're talking about a prostitute in. 1909 New York. Yeah. You're talking about a hard lady. Yeah. You're talking about a woman who carries yeah. a couple of knives on her. And yeah, no she hard as them, hell. you know? Yeah. That lady's scary. Yeah. 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 And that's that's why they hire them. And they yeah. are scary. And they beat yeah. the shit out of these striking workers. It's really yeah. ugly. Damn. And the police show up and basically fight alongside the prostitutes and pimps and arrest a bunch of the striking workers while turning a blind eye. Because this is, we're not going to get into this a lot. And and Dave Vondrell does a good job in his book Triangle of talking about Tammany Hall, the big corrupt political situation. At this yeah. point in time, you could argue it's not all that different now. The gangsters, the pimps, the prostitutes, and the cops can all be on the same side a lot of the time because they're all oh, part yeah. of this incredibly corrupt criminal government of New York City that is yeah. can can just as easily call up gangsters as it can cops, because they're the same thing, you know? Yeah, it's, 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 yeah same things. Yeah, Yeah.
6: That this is such a rad time, just wild, wild west. Like yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. You just as much. Yeah, you know, Joey Two Fingers is just as much gonna get a call from the the governor as he is from his mom. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. To be like yeah, let's let's just run down. That's that's this is crazy. What a what a yeah. time to live in.
4: Yeah, yeah. We got to uh, <laughs> yeah get the squad on the street we got to help these prostitutes beat up a bunch of garment workers <laughs> <laughs> like, that's just the way beat things work
6: working moms yeah. you know what i'm saying yeah mm-hmm.
4: they're all working moms probably <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> like, this for is sure. A, a huge yeah. street fight between a bunch of working women um Now, Blanc and Harris were not the only factory owners who hired cops or gangsters to attack strikers, but they were among the most brutal and committed. Now, during this period, a shitload of smaller manufacturers are willing to negotiate just a few days into the strike. They don't have the same kind of financial resources Triangle does. Um, They can see that, like, okay, they're not really asking. Like, it's not going to stop us from being profitable. Let's just give in and we can get back to making you know, clothing yeah. and shit. Um, the triangle owners, Blanc and Harris, hold their ground. Uh, obviously, they hire police to beat up strikers on a bunch of occasions, but that starts to backfire because, again, these laborers are all young women and you have these cops just beating them bloody in the street and arresting them. And that doesn't look good. No. Like that shit makes the news and people yeah. start to get really angry about what's happening. And so they, they, yeah. and that makes the NYPD look bad. They have to stop for a while. You know, they never entirely stop, but like there's this kind of ebb and flow of how brutal can we be before we have to stop because we don't want to mm-hmm. like piss people off too much. Um, yeah. And the sympathy that starts to build for these lady strikers. Cause again, at this time you also have the suffragette movement and the suffragette movement is not a, Uh, just a poor working class. And in fact, it's largely a wealthy woman movement, like these upper class ladies, and they get on board behind these poor garment workers and see this as part of this broader fight for women's rights. Mm. So all of these, and some of these people are like the wife of JP Morgan, like, yeah, women with some fucking funds behind yes. it. Yes. Um, a number of them are really wealthy widows um, and they start getting together and raising funds um, and part of what the, some of the funds are to help these women pay their rent, pay buy food and stuff because they're wow. not working during the strike. Yeah. Some of it a, a number of these women some of them are just kind of getting in on it like you'll, you'll hear about like JP Morgan's wife I think gives like $100 which is more money back then but it's clearly just mm-hmm. like oh I'll, I'll donate to this cause. Yeah. There are some there's this one woman in particular who would show up every night after the arrests to bail these women out when they got their bail set and one night because so many women got arrested she runs out of cash and she mortgages her mansion in order to bail these ladies out Damn. so there is some some pretty rad solidarity happening what? too. Um, yeah yeah um and so blanc knows like These Blanc and Harris, they're not dumb. They know that things are starting to go against them, public opinions going against them at this point. And the only way to get public opinion back on your side is with a media blitz of your own. Now, I I just said a lot of newspapers were very sympathetic to the strikers. One that Mm -hmm. was not was the biggest newspaper in town, the New York Times, which was always on the side of the bosses in this period. Uh And we could argue today. (laughs) Uh Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Here we go. So... Blanc succeeds in getting a New York Times reporter to feature him in a story that shows his factory full of workers despite the strike. And these guys, no, see, they're happy. It's just some bad. And in the article, this won't sound familiar to anybody, but Blanc, through the New York Times, basically says, look at how happy all of my workers are. The only reason these poor, deluded women are striking is because of outside agitators who have. There they are. There it
5: is. There it is. There it is,
4: <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> did, oh
5: man, he did, he did both. There, he did a few bad mm-hmm. apples, and out yeah. there,
1: yep. Damn, man, mm-hmm.
6: the shit the never bingo card, The playbook, the playbook yeah. is undefeated. We pull it from mm-hmm. the same playbook in 1901. Fool. Dang,
4: yeah, it's it's very funny. Um, yeah, and yeah, and so they have to put out this New York Times article. They do this press blitz, and they also start to try to organize with their fellow business owners. Mm. Um, And right around this period of time, they write a letter to a group of their fellow factory owners. Gentlemen, you are aware of the agitation. Wait, actually, I'm going to use my old Tommy voice. Yeah, old Tommy, come on. You are aware of the agitation that is now going on in our shops. Our satisfied workers are being molested and interfered with. The so-called union is now preparing to call a general strike. In order to prevent this irresponsible union from gaining the upper hand, let us know as soon as you possibly can if you would be willing to form and join an Employers Mutual Protection Association. So they make a union for the uh, bosses. Yeah, the, in okay. order to fight the union of the workers. You got, which is not well, We got a union too hmm To give them the old It football. looks like unionizing works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, this still exists today. We call it the federal government, but that's a story <laughs> for another day.
6: <laughs> <laughs> Yo,
4: you slid that one in. Uh, that's
6: the smoothest uh, slide yeah. in. Yeah, you slid that one in good. Man.
4: So- Blanc and Harris, yeah, respond to this unionization effort by basically making their own union for rich assholes. And part of their rage at their workers' efforts to unionize comes from the fact that the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was, as I've said, by most standards, a very progressive and safe factory. It's considered mm-hmm. that in its time. Yeah. Um Blanc and Harris also, these guys were not born rich. They they, again, these are dirt poor Jewish yeah. immigrants who come to the US fucking desperate. They know what it is to be poor. And they don't have any kind of class solidarity, obviously, Clearly. but they consider it a personal attack that their employees unionize against them, right? That like, so they don't have any solidarity for their workers as former workers, but they're offended that their workers don't treat them like fellow workers and treat Damn, them like Damn, like, hey,
6: I'm, t- come on, I'm, come
4: on, come I'm on, I'm one of the guys, I'm one of the mm-hmm. girls. I've got a car, you're dying of typhus, we're the same. Come on, man, <laughs> we
6: too. You gotta work hard. Fuck up, man. I'm on Yeah, nah, I'm good, bro. So I, that's crazy that, that it messed, huh? What? What? That was very what do we miss?
5: I'm laughing at props. I'm good, bro.
6: I'm good, bro. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Yeah. It's like, cause that's that's the way I would feel about because I I it's funny to me that like it messed with they it messed with their identity and their pride, where it was like, wait, wait, so we're we're not. We're not one of the, we're not one of the squad no more. Mm, Y'all not happy with our, y'all not happy with our building? Like, nah, fam. Nah, you not.
5: That's that.
4: That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Nah, I'm good. (laughs) Yep. So, in addition to hiring cops and gang members to beat strikers, Blanc and Harris, who the the the, the term they're known by, the name they're known by this period is the shirtwaist kings, because they're like the, the biggest shirtwaist dudes in the city in this yeah. period. They also hit upon what's kind of a brilliant plan. They start bribing Italian priests from conservative Catholic parishes to give lectures to their Italian factory workers on company time, explaining that laborers have a duty to be obedient to their bosses. Because again, wow. the whole labor force has been basically jewish immigrants and italian immigrants so a big part of their ideas it's the colonialism thing right it's what britain did in africa you got you have this population united against you you gotta split them along ethnic lines or religious lines and they try to do both it doesn't work in this period the italians and the jews stick together to fuck the bosses um which is a nice tale um so yeah Yeah. uh the triangle bosses also tried to bribe their remaining employees the ones who refused to strike with good times they would start holding dance parties during lunch and give out food and prizes so they do also try to treat the workers who don't strike better in order to like stop them from striking but that's Uh kind of a minimum aspect of what they're actually trying in this period so yeah obviously none of this stops the strike the violence in the streets continues uh and Peace would kind of you know, you would have this this period where like peace would return after a bad skirmish Mm -hmm. and then a few days later strike breakers would be sent into crack heads and the cycle would start again. Um yeah. Uh, at one point, the judges get angry that the the rich ladies who'd banded together to back this union um, were bailing everyone out. So they start sending arrested strikers to do weeks of hard labor in a penal colony. And the strikers start, like, making badges and awards to give women who do time in the penal colony for the movement and stuff. Ooh. It's kind of a way to you got to reward people who go through this shit. Let's go. Time, yeah, that's, no, that's, that's kind of dope. To do it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm hmm. Now, as time wore, wears on, Blanc and Harris decided, like they do, get beaten down by this to a degree, and they decided they're mm-hmm. willing to come to the table and grant their workers most of their demands. So they're willing to give into the 52-hour work week. They're willing to to raise wages. The only thing they're not willing to do is give in to the union's key demands. So this the W the WTUL, which is the union these these w- women form all across New York City for garment workers. One of the things they're trying to get is an agreement from all of these shops to be union only shops. In other words, they won't hire anyone who isn't Mm. a part of the union, which obviously makes the union Mm -hmm. more powerful. And that's the one thing. Eventually, even Blanc and Harris are willing to come to the table on everything else. Um, And because Blanc and Harris have a union of factory owners, they're able to get a lot of other big factories to resist this push to make it a union only shop. What's called a closed shop. Now, meanwhile, the fact that all of these owners had been willing to grant the other demands, this starts to upset the wealthy liberal ladies who had adopted the garment workers' strike as a cause. And they're like, well, why do you need it to be a union-only shop, right? I haven't you gotten enough? Isn't it time for this to be over? Uh-oh. Um, oh so, so that's a factor to it. And this this is kind of the start of the union movement fracturing, and there's more to it than just the rich ladies being like, haven't you got it, gotten enough? There's also a lot of anger from the extreme leftist organizers in the movement because they, they're really unhappy as soon as these rich kind of liberal ladies show up and start throwing their money around. Um, Mm. And they're like, well, hey, this is supposed to be a class movement against the rich. Like, why are we celebrating these rich women who, no matter how much they donate, are still never going to suffer as a result of it? And so they get angry at the rich ladies who do play a key role in this union being able to survive. The rich ladies are like, you guys are asking for too much. Why do you need this? You know, because they don't actually know what it's like to be that desperate. Um, And in addition to all of that, there's frustration among more moderate union organizers because a lot of union organizers in this period are not socialists. There's a lot of socialists in the movement, but like mm-hmm. Samuel Gompers, who's the head of the AFL, um, mm-hmm. the American Fed, he's the biggest union head, is anti-socialist, but he's a union man. Um yeah. So this, there's a lot there, and the, the union organizers who aren't socialists are angry because a lot of the more radical socialists, who are some of the best and most dedicated organizers, want to make this strike more than just a strike for better conditions for garment workers. They're kind of trying to push for a broader feminist revolt. They're adding demands for suffrage to the list of demands the garment workers are making, and this frustrates the more moderate strikers who are like, well, we just want a more equitable deal. We're not really fighting for women's liberation. So the the, the strike movement it does achieve most of its goals. They get the 52 hour work week. They get wages raised. They get a couple of other things, but it also fractures before they get everything that they want, which is, you know, usually how things go, right? Yeah. I mean, mean, that's what failure.
6: Yeah. Yeah. That's what a negotiation is. Like you get, Mm -hmm. you know, a piece here, a piece there. The color that this adds of that again is also, Mm -hmm. wow, that's not familiar of like,
4: no, it, y- never y- happened who before. you want.
6: Yeah, yeah, never happened before to where it's like you only want a certain person to help, and mm-hmm. if it's wrong, like I, 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 I think of like when my my top, my my five year old is like, "Hey, can someone watch, you know, TV with me?" And I'm like, "I will watch TV with you." She's like, "Not you." <laughs> and I'm like, "Wait, what?" She's like, "I want mommy to watch TV with me." I'm like, "Mommy's." working right now and then she'll be like what about my sister and I'm like your sister can't either because she's on punishment I could watch it with you I'm not doing anything well no I don't want to watch tv anymore and it's just like
2: you (laughs) only
6: the disrespect I do not have nobody's a daddy's girl in my house it's the worst but the idea of being like just the 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 complication of like whose movement is this? I say, I'll just say like, whose movement yeah. is this? And that's where, when, uh, the whole, like the, the play of the outside agitator play, that's where you're like, well, well crap, dude, like you kind of got a point there because y'all outside of this are saying, this is your cause. And so you got this bigger cause in the meantime, these ladies who are actually doing the work are like, I don't know what all y'all arguing about. We just, I don't want to work for 80 hours. Mm-hmm. And like that's yeah. what I'm here for. And I I I see how, and we really can use your money. I don't care how much us oh, dope that you got money for us. Like, yeah, thank you. You know what I'm saying? And you saying, wait, so you're saying we shouldn't take their money? So I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. well, do you got money for us? Oh, you ain't got no money for us because you mad at them. Is it just like, well, well, crap, dude? Like, fuck, well, none of y'all work here. Like, you know, like we actually work. It's so the color of that. Yeah.
4: yeah. And, you know, everybody's got a point, right? Everybody's yeah, and got Everyone's a point. got a point. Um, yeah. Yeah. The point, you know, the, the the these rich ladies, they do have a point when they're like, you guys have gotten a lot, like maybe mm-hmm. and, and people haven't been working for months that people keep getting arrested and beaten. Maybe it's time to just take what you can get. The socialists yeah. have a point where they're like, but this doesn't fix nearly everything. Yeah. Um, And you don't really – it's not really your place to say when we should settle because you're never going to have to settle. You're rich. Facts. And then the kind of more moderate laborers are right when they have a a point when they're like – well, we don't want this to be a big, this isn't a, about socialism for us. This is about not working 80 hours a week. And like, Facts. that's kind of where my interest in it ends. Yeah, You know, I'm some 19 year old who just got here and I just want my life to be less miserable. And nobody, yeah. I'm not trying, try, I hope I'm not portraying anyone as right or wrong here. This is just what happens, you know? Yeah, that's my point.
6: Along these lines, yeah. Yeah, that's my um, point of like the color of life where it's like, it's yeah. like like history's in living color and that's what it is. Where mm-hmm. it's like, you got all these different positions and you can't, you can't look at it and be like, they're right, they're wrong. They're right, they're wrong. It's just so complicated. That's crazy.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's just how things happen.
6: Uh-huh.
4: Now- this kind of peters out. They get more or less a win in early 1910. And for the next 13 months or so, life returns to kind of a semblance of normal in the garment industry, at the uh, and especially at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Production resumes. Uh, people get back to work with more reasonable hours and more money. Some things had changed. There'd been significant wins but mm-hmm. obviously as i noted nobody was fighting for improved safety here because they thought the yep. factory was pretty safe um or at least compared to what they would, had been used to and another thing that didn't really change was the greed of blanc and harris and their fellow bosses now we've talked a lot about how flammable garment factories are um yes. and one of the things that had been done by Harris who set because he was a great, he knew how to tailor and stuff had set out the layout of this factory is he had designed the floor of the factory so that the cutters, and these are the people who are like cutting out the different sort of like scraps Mm -hmm. that get sewn together. Mm -hmm. These are the people who produce the most waste scrap and waste paper. So these guys Mm -hmm. all do their work on these enormous tables. And one of Harris's innovations is to put trash waste baskets underneath the table. So you can just sweep your waste right into the right under the table. Very efficient. This also means that you get hundreds of pounds of cotton and tracing paper and cloth crammed together loosely so that there's air in between all of them underneath these tables, which basically makes them fuel air bombs. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, wait. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone knew these were horrific fire hazards. The Triangle Factory had uh, two noteworthy accidental fires, and I'm specifying accidental, I'll explain why here, prior to 1911, uh, one of which was put out by Harris himself. Buckets of water were stationed around the factory floor. A hose that was supposed to work was cut, kept near the cutting table, although it had been allowed to rust shut. Most mm. significantly, though, the building did not have a sprinkler system, and the workers did not participate in fire fire drills. Now, Hmm. neither of these things were required in garment factories under New York law in 1911, but sprinklers were widely available. In fact, starting in the 1880s, they'd become required in New England cotton mills alongside firewalls and fireproof doors to create safe zones for employees in the event of a blaze. Cotton mills, as we've said, cotton's explosive, basically, very dangerous places. In the 1880s, all of these things come to cotton mills, and cotton mills suddenly become pretty safe places to work by comparison. But this doesn't get required in garment uh, factories, even though they're dealing with a lot of the same materials. Um, now, part of the reason why these weren't put in the factories has to do with greed and not the kind of greed you think. A lot of times people like will say, well, they didn't put in sprinklers because sprinkler systems were expensive. That's not really the reason. The real explanation for why there were no sprinklers in the triangle factory starts with the way insurance worked in Manhattan during this period. So all of the insurance brokers, the guys who are selling insurance to companies, mm-hmm. colluded together because these guys make their money. When you sell a policy as an insurance broker, you get a percentage of the value yeah. of that sale. That's where how you make your money. Yeah. So you make more money if you sell more policies, which means you don't want to be denying anybody policies. And yeah. normally, the way you'd think about an insurance policy, the safer your building is, the more safety measures like yeah. – like, sprinklers you have in your building, the lower insurance premiums are. But if yeah. your insurance premiums are lower, that means the broker gets less money. Whoa. So the broker doesn't want to give you... They want to have a lot of Whoa. insurance policies for dangerous buildings. They don't want safety measures in because that means they get less money. So I'm going to quote again from the book, Triangle oh the God. Fire that Changed America here. I know,
6: it's pretty fucked. <laughs> There's a hustle everywhere. Damn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
4: Quote yeah this and, w- and one of the things... So these brokers are all colluding together, and the brokers are not the insurance companies, right? The brokers work for the companies, but the insurance companies are the ones on the line. The broker doesn't pay when there's a fire. And one of the ways in which the brokers kind of get over the fact that what they're doing should be in the worst interest of the insurance company is they they get – they basically split up the risk for each of these insurance policies among multiple insurance companies so that if a factory has a horrible hmm. fire that destroys a bunch of stuff, every company only pays a little bit of money and the brokers get as much money still because they're selling as many. So they, they're they're sharing the brilliant. risk because none of them have to work in these factories. They don't give hmm. a shit how many people die. They just care Absolutely that they brilliant. keep selling policies. Um, so I'm going to quote from Triangle, the fire that changed America here. Uh-huh. Blanc and Harris were perfect examples of this skewed system. Few factory owners paid higher rates than they did. And as a result, they commanded the loyalty of the most powerful brokerage in town. The triangle owners were so-called rotten risks in insurance parlance because they kept having fires and not just little ones that could be put out by hand. They were repeaters, having collected on several substantial claims. And yet they had little difficulty buying all the insurance they wanted. Some of these repeat fires were likely deliberate. In April of 1902, Blanc and Harris Mm -hmm. called the fire department about a fire. The NYFD arrived a little too late to save the inventory of the factory, which burnt in its entirety. Thankfully, no workers were present at the time. Blanc and Harris collected a hefty insurance payment. Six months later, they had another fire— also early enough in the morning that no workers were present. Blanc and Harris collected $32,000 in damage from both fires. Both blazes occurred at the end of the busy season, which was the part of the year in which factory owners who had overestimated demand for their product tended Ooh. to wind up wind up with a bunch of extra inventory they couldn't sell. So this these very convenient fires Ooh. happened right at the time when they needed to get rid of excess inventory. Yeah. Um, in 1907, there were two more fires at another factory that they owned, and they followed the same pattern so these guys are starting fires to destroy their excess inventory and collecting the insurance on stuff they can't sell that's part of how they stay profitable
6: and then you and if you split the insurance among multiple guests seems like everybody's happy
4: everybody's happy except for the
6: people that'll die
4: yeah. <laughs> yeah, So the fact that it works this way means insurance brokers don't really want to confront this abuse of their policies um, yeah. because the brokers collect a bounty on each new policy. Now, some the insurance companies aren't always happy about this because this does True. cost them money. But they the brokers are fine with this shit. Um, yeah. And garment factory owners are uh, like, th- this becomes a crucial part of their business. It protects them from the kind of fickle yeah. whims of the industry. Um, because, you know, then as I think now, the fashion industry hinges on what happens in Paris that year. So if you mm-hmm. are geared up to make a bunch of top hats or coattails or whatever, and then some fucker in Paris decides that's not the hot item, you yeah, have dead. a bunch of shit you can't sell and you got to light it on fire. <laughs> yeah, you're dead. <laughs> like, yeah. It's the trucker I mean, hats. Sophie and I do the same thing with podcasts. We can't air. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You just got to light, yeah. yeah. light it on fire. Yeah. You got to light it on fire. Remember remember the the Remember the trucker hat craze? Dude. Oh, God, the, yeah.
6: The, yeah, so I'm like, what about the guy that like sitting on a box of trucker hats? Too bad you can't. The Von Dutch joints. Yeah, you got to burn mm-hmm. them things, dog. Yeah.
4: I think there's a lot of Von Dutch hats going around in Iraq or someplace now. It's yes, like with right. all of the old shirts from political <laughs> candidates that wind up in Ecuador someplace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um... Blanc and Harris, again, not the only business owners who do this. This is the norm in the industry. But the fact that such a practice is the norm means that factory owners, like insurance brokers, have a vested interest in avoiding fire prevention measures. Sprinklers Mm -hmm. can't discriminate between a safe, intentional fire meant to create an insurance payment or an accidental fire. And if you disable your sprinklers before you carry out an intentional fire, that looks suspicious and you'll get in trouble with the cops. Yeah. 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 Now it's arson. Now. Yeah. Now it's arson. So you don't want to have sprinklers because you rely on being able to start fires. Now, as it happened, 1911 was the year that Paris turned on the shirtwaist. Demand dropped, and so many manufacturers were burning their wares that one large insurance company had to cancel their policies with all shirtwaist makers. Block and Harris stayed insured, though, Uh, and in fact, they were overinsured. They were paying enormous rates to carry more insurance than the actual value of the content of the factory, Why they did this, because this cost them a lot of money. Up until you get the payout, you're spending a lot of money. Dave Vondrell, who wrote the book Triangles, a very good journalist, the reason he suspects both of these men did this is that they were planning, because again, these guys own a bunch of factories, right? They have multiple Mm -hmm. companies making shirtwaists. They have a bunch of excess inventory. He suspects at the end of the year, they were going to take all of their excess inventory, put it in the Triangle factory, and light it on fire for an insurance Uh, payment worth several million modern dollars. Yeah. Mm Yeah. Hence, Vondrell writes, quote, they could not put sprinklers in their factory if they thought it might need to burn sometime. And they might think that instituting fire drills in a world where few factories had them would make them look suspiciously conscious of the issue. So they're not even willing to do fire drills because it might make Damn. it look like they're expecting a fire because they're absolutely <laughs> planning to burn yeah. this fucker down. Yeah. Yeah. What a yeah. what a
6: strange interrogation though, to where it was like, mm. Hey, why were y'all doing fire drills? Mm-hmm. it's Like just in case there was, a, mm-hmm. I yes, mean there, there a might fire. have been a fire. I don't might understand why that was like nobody else. They didn't do no fire drills. Mm-hmm. It's fine over mm-hmm. here. It's no. interesting you started doing fire drills right before your house thing caught on fire. Like why mm-hmm. wouldn't you play it cool enough to be like yeah yeah and thank God we did it. Like uh, you know yeah we saved we, a lot of lives. We saved a lot of lives <laughs> That's why we did it. You know mm-hmm. man yeah when you when you got a hustle though when you when you working on trying to hit a lick man you got to think of every angle mm-hmm. and that was one of the angles he thought of like look man. we we can't look like we might've been prepared just in case a disaster happened because it's not a disaster. It's a plan. Yep. Was it one of those, like, like you said, everybody was doing it. Was this one of those, like, yeah, like worst kept secrets in the city. Like everybody knew everybody was going to set their
4: own thing. Yeah. People, the journalists write about it. Everyone knows this goes down, right? This is not like, obviously none of these rich guys are admitting it, but it's not. Nobody, nobody is, is. Yeah. Nobody thinks this isn't happening. So this brings us to the fire. All right. On March 25th, 1911, there were roughly 600 workers in the Triangle Factory in the late afternoon when closing time came for the workday. The fire started at one of the cutting tables. Remember how I described these tables? Yeah. These are basically giant fuel air bombs that people work at. Mm-hmm. Um, the table had been prepped for the next day of work, which meant it had 120 layers of tissue paper and fabric no. on top of it, and then hundreds of pounds of scraps in the waste bin beneath it. No. Now. For obvious reasons, smoking was banned in the factory. Yes, yes. But these cutters, remember, the cutters are the most important part of the whole operation. These are some mm-hmm. of the only men working there. They're the most highly paid workers. They're irreplaceable, right? Because, yeah. number one, the guys who are cutting from the big fabric swaths to make the things that people sew together, if they're good at their job, they waste less fabric, which saves you money. If they're good yeah. at their job, they put out more stuff faster, which allows you to make more, which is. So these guys. It's in no – the owners ban smoking in the factory, but also nobody wants to make these guys unhappy because they, yeah. they they don't have to work here. They can go elsewhere, yeah. right? They can, get, they, yeah. they can get money anywhere. Yeah. Um, so as best as we can tell, so one of them was smoking. One of them smoked a cigarette oh, or a God. cigar. We don't really know, but he, he snuck a smoke. Which was very common. It had caused some minor fires before. Um, and they either tossed, they either put out their match and tossed it in in the the waste basket, which is filled with hundreds of pounds of cotton, and fabric, thinking. and paper. Or they tossed their cigarette butt. And they probably put it out first, but not, all it would take is a single ember, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it may have just been that it may have been somebody put it out. They thought they were being careful. They toss it in and there's one little red ember the size of a fucking hair follicle. And that's what starts all this. Um, And the whatever it is, it catches Um, and it fucking goes up like a. Like a, it is a firebomb, basically. Yeah. Um, now, workers rush to grab pails of water to put out the blaze. And honestly, like one of the big heroes of this is a guy who who's initially attempts to stop the blaze and then helps rescue dozens of people. It's possible, as heroic as he was, that he got people killed because he tried to stop the fire rather than immediately focusing on evacuation. Mm, because by the time yeah. this thing starts, it's fucked. The only yeah. thing to do. And again, a lot of lives and I'm not blaming that guy, but a lot of lives would have yeah. been saved if they practiced evacuations because that's the yeah, only yeah, yeah. thing that you can't put this fucker out once it starts. Yeah, they don't have the equipment. Workers grab pails of water to try to put out the blaze. Some of them are empty. You'll hear. Um, but even if they hadn't been, I don't think it would have helped. Um, I'm going to quote from a write up in history.com here the manager attempted to use the fire hose to extinguish it but was unsuccessful as the hose was rotted and its valve was rusted shut as the fire grew panic ensued and the hose might have helped Uh, the young workers tried to exit the building by the elevator but it could hold only 12 people and the operator was able to make just four trips back and forth before it broke down amidst the heat and flames in a desperate attempt to escape the fire the girls left behind waiting for the elevator plunged down the shaft to their deaths the girls who fled via the stairwells also met awful demises. When they found a locked door at the bottom of the stairs, many were burned alive. They find dozens of bodies next to this door, just like lumped together. Within 18 minutes, it was all over. 49 workers had burned to death or been suffocated by smoke. 36 were dead in the elevator shaft, and 58 died from jumping to the sidewalks, with two more later dying from their injuries. A total of 146 people were killed by the fire. Oh. Now, so Dave sad. Vondrell goes into much more detail about the fire and the heroism of the people. Like the these elevator attendants are incredibly yeah. brave because they're yeah. they're riding an elevator up into flames, licking at their heads to try and save as many people as they possibly. Could. Yeah, when you tell Knowing me, he did four they could trips. get stuck. Yeah, yeah. they could have gotten yeah. stuck on any one of those and burned. Them. incredibly uh-huh. brave people. Um, yeah. and there's a lot of very brave people. Um, now, again. A big part of why so many people die is that Blanc and Harris had locked the main exit um, so that because they, they, their employees were getting ready to leave, they wanted to search them before they left to make sure nobody mm-hmm. was stealing shit. But maybe the bigger problem was the fire escape, which we'd already talked about didn't really work. So people flood to the fire escape, which is tiny and poorly constructed, and eventually it collapses and people fall to their doom. A lot of people get impaled. Um, oh, my God. And, you know, it's, it's just horrible. In the weeks that followed the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, worker safety suddenly became a matter of paramount concern for union organizers and for the local government. There is an outrage against this. Like 100,000 people take to the streets. There's mass demonstrations against this. People demand new fire safety codes and more fire inspectors. In October of 1911, just months after the disaster, the United Association of Safety Engineers was founded. A fire prevention law was passed that same month, which required all factories in New York City to install sprinklers. Systems in their buildings. Now, one of the people who'd been passing by on the street at the time and who watched, didn't just see the fire, watched dozens of women leap to their deaths and oh, splatter no. on the fucking pavement. One of the people who sees this is a woman named Frances Perkins. Frances Perkins, 20 years later or so, becomes the U.S. Secretary of Labor under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Wow. Now shook her, yeah. Yeah, Perkins mentions the Triangle Fire constantly in the speeches she gives when she's made Secretary of Labor and repeatedly recalls the moment when she watches these women leap to their deaths to avoid burning alive. Quote from Francis. They couldn't hold on any longer. There was no place to go. The fire was between them and any means of exit. It's that awful choice people talk of. What kind of choice to make? I shall never forget the frozen horror that came across as we stood with our hands on our throats, watching that horrible sight, knowing there was no help. So Damn. this becomes... This, this, in, this is like... Her She makes it her life quest to never yeah. be that helpless in the face of a disaster like this again. And as Secretary of Labor, Perkins establishes the Factory Investigating Commission, which lobbies for stronger safety measures and makes sure factories are meeting certain minimum safety standards. Mm-hmm. She serves for 12 years, during which she is key in forming and implementing not just Reforms of safety, she helps push the Social Security Act through. She helps to create Uh-oh. unemployment insurance. She pushes for the establishment of the minimum wage, and she legislates the guarantee for the right of workers to organize and collectively bargain. Perkins also establishes the Labor Standards Bureau, which is focused on ensuring employees meet certain employers meet certain minimum safety standards. In 1970, the Labor Standards Bureau becomes OSHA. Whoa.
6: Whoa. So, so that was just pivotal yeah. for her.
4: Yeah. That I mean, Damn. this is the defining moment of her life in some ways. I, I, obviously, yeah. how could you watch this and have it not be, you know?
6: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could have went the opposite way where she yeah. could have but for it to turn into activism is like,
4: man, yeah, that's amazing. So of course, the sheer level of outrage around the fire ensured that there were immediate calls to charge Blanc and Harris for manslaughter. Both tycoons immediately poured money into an advertising campaign, dedicated to buffing their image as a safe and reliable garment manufacturer. Reporters from the New York Times met with Harris in his home and dutifully reported his defense of his actions and claims that he had taken proper precautions. None of this succeeded in assuaging public rage. On April 11th, both men were indicted for manslaughter. Since most of the safety features their factory lacked were not mandated by law, the case came down to the question of whether or not they had legally locked the exits. From a write-up mm. in Forbes, quote, Max Stewart, one of the top defense attorneys of his day, poked holes in the witness's testimony and made it appear that a key witness's story had been rehearsed. On December 27th, the all-male jury returned a verdict of not guilty after less than two hours of deliberation. Isaac Harris and Max Blanc dropped limply into their chairs as their wives began sobbing quietly just behind them, writes Vondrell in Triangle. Now, hmm. the shirtwaist kings had to, like, because these... this. You know, is such an unpopular verdict. They have to sneak out of the courthouse to their limousine, and they get confronted by a young guy whose sister had died in the fire, who screams yeah. at them, basically yells at them that they're murderers. Which yeah, murderer. Which you could argue is accurate, yeah. Now, both guys immediately go on to try to rebuild the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. Since even today, a lot of people know the term Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, even if they don't know what it was, this was kind of yeah. a lost cause, right? Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. the, the, the brand has been poisoned. Yeah, it's um, a, your
6: brand's burnt, bro. Well,
4: yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Harris and Blanc struggled financially as all of the funds they did make had to go straight to the debt they had to their lawyer. Uh, they mm. were sued in 1912 over their failure to pay a $206 water bill. However, the tough times did not last long. Late in 1912, they get the insurance payout from the Triangle Shirtwaist fire. Whoa, they wow. I forgot total... about the
6: insurance.
4: Yeah. That's crazy. They collect a total of sixty thousand dollars, which is a fuckload of money in nineteen twelve, yeah. and yeah. is more than the fire had cost them in damages. Now they have to pay restitution to the families of the dead, but they just have to pay a week's salary, which is like ten or fifteen what? bucks at most for uh, most of these women. So <sighs> they walk away from the fire because of the insurance payout. They profit about four hundred dollars per victim. Oh. Oh man! I,
6: to say it like that, we made like four bucks per dead person. Damn! Yeah, yeah. God, mm-hmm. it's just the Empire Strikes Back always. Yeah, baby, bro. I, you know, it was a one hundred percent avoidable disaster. Mm-hmm. Ends up
4: making you money. Ah, mm-hmm. duh. And these guys don't learn a goddamn thing. Of course, in nineteen thirteen. The next year after they get their payment, Blanc, who's running another factory, is issued a warning from an inspector because now there's inspectors. So an inspector checks out this new triangle factory and it finds that he's locked the door of the factory again during work hours. So now the thing that he successfully got off on in court, he's caught doing again. (laughs) The same
6: thing. So the triangle factory burned. Now he got the parallelogram factory. Mm -hmm. And. And he locked the door again because, mm-hmm. I mean, I did, It's like, it kind of sucked for a little bit, but we, we kind of made some money, guys.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Kind of He does out. get fined $20 for this, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, the, yeah, uh, you know. Yeah. And a couple What's months th- after that, he's he's fined again when another factory inspector finds that he's he's lined the walls with scrap baskets that basically make the whole thing a death trap again. That caused again. the bomb. So yeah. Yeah, that college. He that does thing it that, again. He does it again. <laughs> it just keeps... What's that thing with Ford? The uh
6: the 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 car we used to, everybody used to make fun of. Uh but uh, that oh, the pinto. Yeah, the pinto that like <laughs> when they where they put the gas, where they put the the mm-hmm. gas tank was means like it's gonna become a bomb. And the Ford decided it's just cheaper to just pay whatever fines if people die rather than reclaim them and remake them all. I forget what that was called, but there's a term for it. But that's what this reminds me of where it's like, I mean, it's cheaper to just pay the fine than to like make the factory safe.
4: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's wild, God. It's pretty great. It's pretty great. In 1914, both Harris and Blanc were fined when they were caught sewing fake Consumers League labels into their garments. (laughs) Now, these (laughs) labels were a legacy of the Triangle Fire. They were meant to certify that a factory had safe conditions for its laborers. (laughs) So, obviously, everyone gets horrified by unsafe work conditions. They developed this way to show that, like, your factory is safe, and these guys fake having that label oh my, so they yeah. can pretend they're a say yeah yeah
8: there is
6: nothing um, new dude like how many times yeah. you picked up something like is this organic is this grass-fed yeah, yeah look it says yeah. it right here on the look label
4: it. yeah yep now in 1918 though they do finally shut down the triangle company it just never makes as much money as it had before for obvious cool. reasons yeah Isaac Harris goes back to working as a tailor and Blanc continues to own other garment factories uh, neither of, of them pay anything that we could we would reasonably call a price for no. for what they've done
5: Piece of shits.
4: Wow so good time somebody
6: huh, hey I think the lesson here is that cheating cheaters prosper that's the lesson
4: mm-hmm Cheaters do fucking great. Cheaters make out like gangbusters. Cheaters win. Uh, So you know, if you want to learn anything useful from this, just remember to lock the factory door in the fire hazard of a garment factory in your life. Whatever that is for you, lock that door. Make sure the fire escape isn't functional. You know,
6: yeah. Just do that. No efforts. Make no efforts to show that you're trying because Mm -hmm. if you show that you're
4: trying, that means you're cheating. Yeah. If you're trying, you're guilty. Yes. Got it. This is a disaster. And that's my motto. Mm Hmm. Don't try because trying means you're guilty. Well, prop. That's gonna there do it is. for us at Behind the Bastards today. How are you how are you doing?
6: I am uh that same sinking feeling that every guest has at the end of a show to where you're like, man, I'm glad I got through that. Now I have to think about this for the next until I go to bed. That like this is true. But I had a great time hanging with y'all. It's just it's kind of, it's it's a whole mess, man.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: It is a whole mess.
5: Welcome to my. There's got to be. You
4: some know what's not a mess, prop.
5: You're not doing an ad. There's no ad right now.
4: What's not a mess uh, is your podcast, we, Hood Politics. Oh, that's, oh
5: that's,
6: I was like, wait, are we going to an ad break at the, break at the end? No, no, okay. no, no. We're doing a uh, no, kind of plug. Yeah, Hood Politics with Prop Man. Man, I like. I'm so excited about being able to like have a consistent like flow of content that like now I'm getting so far ahead of myself. So like,
5: yeah, Some prop, of the prop, stuff I'm talking like, about, I have like ten episodes. Right now, ain't gonna
6: come out until. Uh, you know, three weeks from now. So I'm like, well, crap, dude, how do I stay hot? You know, but man, hood politics with prop, got some great episodes in the can. Um, We're covering everything. Like Joe Biden's from Mm -hmm. Long Beach. Uh, The Israel and Palestine, uh, Armenian genocide, like what it means for to be a foreign ally, like everything. It's all
4: coming. So check it out.
5: It's a weekly and, podcast. Um, You're welcome.
4: Yeah. Yes, it is weekly. It's a podcast you, as regular as garment fires in early 1900s New York.
6: And old timey
4: guys that always make it out on top. Yeah. Always. Oh, always handle it. And hiring gangsters fine.
6: and prostitutes to beat up workers.
5: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's
6: the mm-hmm. American way. I do want that TV show. I was gonna say that has to be that has to be a show. Yeah.
5: There has to be some character right. in
6: that that like where the lady was getting getting her ass beat by this prostitute and she comes up with the idea of like, maybe I should just maybe I should quit this factory thing and become a prostitute like and she just like yeah. switches
4: sides because she's like,
3: mm-hmm.
4: sure. Well, we uh, I wrote a book. It's called After the Revolution. You can find the podcast version of that book with sound effects by our own Dan'l. Uh, if you if you she type after the didn't. revolution into whatever fucking thing your podcasts come the fuck from, um, it's really good. So that's I great. Recommend and it. You'll be able it's to. Lovely. It. lovely. I'm excited about Sophie. that, man. Mm-hmm. It's re- yeah. It's, I mean,
5: uh, the book it's really good, and the podcast is really good, and Robert's really good. So should be excited.
4: You can also find Robert the ePub version. Yeah, you can no. find no the EPUB fun. for Yawns. free online. at, at okay. This, is so much fun. this guy breaks into can, a yawn. I was about to, the-
6: <laughs> I was about to like let me tell you something, man. because you know I, I'm I'm publishing a book too, and like as good as you are, like I thought about, man, just like the way that you guys, as well as y'all, write, and the way that y'all tore up uh, Ben Shapiro's book, I was thinking about that as I was writing my own, to be like, let me make sure. Mm-hmm. I don't get dragged by the homies for me writing this thing. <laughs> now, granted,
5: it's I mean,
4: definitely not as bad as that, but there's all every book anyone's ever written has draggable things. But I think True. what really yeah. makes you draggable is being Ben Shapiro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He kinda, he you kind of mm. you kind of came with the
5: and, and probably yeah. you are not Ben Shapiro, thankfully.
4: i no. very not to ben the best Shapiro. of my knowledge.
5: Yeah,
4: um, you always buy two boards when you go to the Home Depot.
2: <laughs> Dude, oh that's
4: God, the funniest man. thing i've seen in a the like, thing. Oh. i'm gonna support him i was like fam you spent a dollar 50 yeah that's like that's like you could you would have given them more money if you'd bought a diet coke like come on buddy come, bro this your point like yeah this is the also you're like, a millionaire get like an angle grinder or a fucking circular saw or something buy a power tool an, he doesn't like, deserve it he doesn't but like you're trying to pretend to be cool what are you doing
5: (laughs) it was just so funny because
6: i'm like you making this huge political statement and you showed me that little ass bag in your hands and i was like wait is that what he bought i thought i thought i'm like are you making fun of yourself like do you
4: yeah are you in on the joke like are you in on the joke
5: a lot of times because your whole thing is. is supposed to
4: be like we're the party of the honest working man. That's who I represent. It's like, I've spent a lot of time in home depots. Like, you know, I've spent a shitload of time. Uh, I'm not particularly handy, but people very close to me do that shit for a living. I've spent a lot of time doing runs for like, like functioning farms and stuff. Yeah. Nobody who's a serious working class person who needs to go there walks out with a paper bat with a plastic bag and a single piece of wood. right like right you're a millionaire buy a power tool and at least like try to pretend like you're cool yeah like yeah i got a giant saw like go get a go get a fucking husk varna or something and yeah tell tell me a story Spin me a story a that my uncle, yeah.
6: yeah, yeah. my uncle's been using the same saw for, the for, yeah. you know, 50 years. I'm going to buy him a brand new saw. I'm going to go to Home Depot. I just put it, me and my brother-in-law just put in a new sink in my office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, d- speaking of going to the store, I'm like, first of all, you,
4: you're going to go at least four times. At least four, some yeah.
6: At least yes, four. There's Some, no
4: one trip to Home Depot getting it. No one it makes
6: one trip. Like, damn, this don't work. Oh my god, now this is leaking. This is the wrong fucking size. Like, you're gonna make four trips. And mm-hmm. I did, and I'm like, putting it in the sink, I'm like, I I know I spent just on return trips a hundred dollars. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, don't tell bro, that was so hilarious.
4: And it's like there's an easy way. You're Ben Shapiro, right? Your your big thing is denying yeah. climate change, be like or saying it's not a problem. Be like, well, there's fires, and since I'm not a, a weak liberal, I'm just going to fireproof my house, and I'm going to go cut down the tree in my yard so it can't catch. Because that's what real conservative men do. And then go buy a giant chainsaw, put it in your fucking garage, forget about it, and hire someone else to do the work. You're Ben yeah. Shapiro. You're a millionaire. Like what is? Yeah, that- pretend. At least this pretend f- well.
6: <laughs> yeah. What are we talking about? This has about? been a fun
4: digression about Ben Shapiro after <laughs> yes. an hour and 40 minutes of talking about the Triangle Shirtwaist fire.
5: <laughs> anyway, listen to, <laughs> <Hood> <laughs> listen, to yeah. listen to Hood Politics. Listen to After the Listen to Hood Politics. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
4: we'll see you fools later. <laughs> Don't listen to Ben Shapiro, although this episode is dropping the same week as the last of the Ben's Books episodes. So I guess it fits. Fuck it. Oh, Fuck God, that's it. so exciting. This was a
5: great plug for Thursday's yeah. app
4: nailed it all right peace oh my god
0: happy pride from tomboy x we just dropped our pride 24 collection queer founded queer run and creating size and gender inclusive underwear swimwear and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin visit tomboyx.com to shop